As we begin reading in Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 26, it says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You know, in all the 20 plus years that we've lived here, we travel out west to go back to Washington State to visit family most every year. Well, it's a 30 plus hour trip back to visit our family, and so you want to make as good a time as you can on the highway. It's not uncommon to come across road construction, and it's very hard to make that adjustment from 75 miles an hour, which is what many of the state speed limits are, to make that adjustment from 75 miles an hour to down to 45, down to 35. But you know what? There's one sign that always gets me. And that's a sign that says, fines double in work zones. <laughs> now, I'm not even sure what those fines are to start with, but just the fact that I, I know that it's going to cost me double if I get uh, stopped in one of those work zones is enough to make me further curtail my speed limit and, and obey the rules. Now, why do they do that? They do that because safety is important. And they got the lives of the people working on, this, on the road construction projects there that are at stake. And so they're sending you a message. And that message is saying very clearly, if you violate the rules here, it's going to cost you. Well, as we come to this passage in the book of Hebrews, he's using this idea of personal cost to motivate them toward the proper response. He's telling them, if you can turn your back on Christ, if you can trample underfoot the Son of God, if you can profane that blood of the covenant, if you can outrage the spirit of grace, then you're going to pay the price. And the author at this point is writing to the people and he's saying, if you do that, it'll cost you. You cannot believe what it's going to cost you. Your faith might cost you something right now, and we're going to see that next week. We're going to see that it costs some of them their homes, some of them their freedom, some of them some ridicule or some mockery. But he says, you have no idea what it's going to cost you. If you turn your back on Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ laid down His life for you. He, he paid the penalty of all of your sins. He took that upon Himself and paid your debt, gave you forgiveness through His once and for all sacrifice. And if you turn away from that, you lose it all. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no more sacrifice for sins. I remember reading that as a younger Christian and thought, uh-oh, does that mean... If I did something that was wrong, and I knew it was wrong before I did it, that there's no forgiveness? I mean, because if that's the case, who can be forgiven? Now, notice, first of all, it's connection to what we talked about before. It starts with that word for. In other words, he's saying, I'm going to give you reasons. So last couple weeks, we looked at he was encouraging these people to draw near to God, to hold fast to their confession of faith, and to be an encouragement to one another as they did it. So not forsake God, don't forsake one another, be faithful. That passage was built on the whole book leading up to that point. It says because of the supremacy of Jesus Christ, because of the supremacy of the new covenant and the forgiveness that we have in the new covenant, we should be drawing near to Christ. We should be holding fast to our confession and we should be encouraging one another. And now he's going to tell them this is why you need to do this. You need to hold fast, draw near, encourage, for... 
If you don't, there's no more sacrifice for sin. You see, the sin that he's talking about when he says, if we sin deliberately, is a very specific sin. Falling away from Christ. He's talking about their defection, about their the word that we get from the Greek word in, uh, that was used back in chapter 6, apostasy. Apostasy means that you clung to something and then you walked away from it. You abandoned it. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. See what he's saying? He's saying you're a person that has received the knowledge of the truth. We've recognized in studying through this letter, these are people that had heard the knowledge of Jesus Christ, the truth about Jesus Christ. They received it. They welcomed it. But now, they're considering turning away from that, abandoning their faith in Christ, and going back to the temple and those Old Testament sacrifices that were still going on in the temple at that time. And he's telling them, you can't do that. You know better. It's like what he said back in chapter 6. He described those people as those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. And so he described these people as people who had been very, very close to salvation. In fact, some people think they had experienced it. But these are people that had heard the goodness of the Word of God. They would experienced the goodness of the Word of God, the work of the Spirit in their heart, drawing them to Christ. And they made a profession of faith. But now, they're tempted to abandon that confession. It's not the only time that has happened within the Bible. We see in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 19 that they had experienced it in that church. He says, "...they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us." In other words, he says they had people within that church that had come in, claimed to be with them, made a confession of faith, said that they were trusting in Christ, and then later turned their back on Christ and left the church and left their faith. And he says, you know what, that just shows that they were not sincere in their faith, because obviously faith is going to remain faithful. What is the true test of our faith? It's remaining faithful. It's holding fast. It's remaining. It's abiding You know, Jesus taught a parable dealing with this back in Matthew chapter 13. It's a parable of the soils. And a sower goes out into the field to plant a seed, and he he scatters seed all over the field. And Jesus said that that seed landed on four different kinds of soils. Some of the seed landed on the road, and the seed scattered out on the road, but obviously didn't sink in. The birds came down and took it away. Later, the disciples asked Jesus, what does this parable mean? Jesus said, the seed landing on the road lands on a hard surface. Satan comes down, takes it away before it has a chance to do anything. Then he also said, some of the seed landed in rocky soil. Now, the rocky soil sprang up quickly, but then the sun came out and withered it away. Some of it landed among thorns. Very quickly was choked out by the weeds and the thorns, and so it died out. And he says, finally, you have good soil. And the seed sinks into that good soil, and it grows, it takes root, and it becomes strong, and it produces fruit. And Jesus said, the people that hear the Word of God are like that. The seed is the Word of God that goes out into the world. In some places it lands on that hard road, and Satan takes it away. some places that seed lands in hard, rocky soil. And these are the people, he said, that for a short time they make a confession They say they're trusting in Christ. They're excited about this new faith. But then persecutions arise. 
Their friends don't think it was such a great idea. Their family doesn't think it's a good thing. And they fall away. And they turn their back on their faith. He says, and then there's the ones among the weeds. The cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches all choke that out. In other words, they're too interested in so many other things that they don't have any time to be interested in their faith, interested in God. And so those are all images. Those are all pictures of a faith that is insincere. It looked good for a moment. It was appearance only, but it very quickly faded out because it did not take root. It was not planted in good soil. You see, the writer to the Hebrews is writing to them, and he keeps telling them, I'm convinced you're good soil. I'm convinced you're genuine in your faith. I really think you are. Because of some of the things he'd seen in their life in the past, and the things that they'd held up under, he said, but you know what? If you turn your back on Christ, just as we've said many times up till now, he said, you'll prove me wrong. You'll prove me wrong. And your departure from us will show that you were never genuinely of us. Well, that's the specific sin that it's talking about in this passage. He's talking about to those who had received, who had welcomed the truth of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, and then they turned their back and abandoned Him and go back to their old way of living, back to something different. He's warning them. And He's saying, there's a price for that. And that's what we're considering this morning is the price of apostasy. Well, as we look at it in the passage this morning, as we see that price unfolded before us, the first thing that we see is we see a guarantee of punishment. Because notice what he says here. It says, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. He says, if you embraced Jesus Christ, if you made a confession of faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and then you turn away from that, You're turning away from the forgiveness that is in Jesus Christ. It's kind of like what he said toward the beginning of the book. Remember at the beginning of chapter 2? Where he says, how should we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? He's saying we will not escape if we neglect such a great salvation. You know, the God of all the earth was willing to send His own Son to the cross to die on the cross for our sins to completely pay our debt of sin for our sin, which is our death, on our behalf. There's only one person that did that. And it wasn't Mohammed, and it wasn't Confucius, and it wasn't an an animal. It was Jesus Christ. If we turn our back on Jesus Christ, we turn our back on the only legitimate sacrifice for our sins. And these people, they're probably thinking because of their heritage and where they're from, and with the temple still present at that time, they're probably thinking, you know what, I'm going to forget about Jesus. I'm going to go back to the temple and offer those sacrifices. Won't God be pleased with those? He commanded them to Moses way back in the beginning. Those are all sacrifices that were commanded by Moses. But the author of Hebrews has already shown that those sacrifices were never sufficient. If they were, they would have quit being offered because they would have worked. He also pointed out that those sacrifices were the blood of bulls and goats. Bulls and goats can't pay the debt that a human being owes for their sin. He also pointed out that those sacrifices were a temporary nature. They were a picture, a pattern, remember a copy, a shadow, he used those words to describe it, of the real sacrifice that was actually going to work, which was of Jesus Christ. Now we have the fulfillment, the real sacrifice in Christ. Those temple sacrifices that were continuing to be offered, he says they're no good. Their whole job was to point at the reality. The reality is here, so they're done. There is no more sacrifice. This is the only way. 
And so what he's saying is, if you turn your back on this sacrifice, if you turn your back on Christ, you're turning your back on the only way to be forgiven of your sins. You're turning your back on the only source of redemption. Remember, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. The apostles would teach there is no other way. There's no other mediator between God and man other than the man, Christ Jesus. There is in Acts 4.12, there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved than the name Jesus Christ. He is the only path to forgiveness. And so he's saying, if we turn our backs on that, what are we doing? We are guaranteeing our judgment. We are guaranteeing our punishment. In Galatians chapter 6, in verses 7 through 9, it says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. This week it talks about us avoiding the judgment of God. Next week it talks about us receiving the reward. And I'm looking forward to getting on to that part. But first we need to recognize the reality of the judgment. You know what he says? Do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. In other words, he's not going to take these people, turning their back, throwing it back in the face of God. He's not going to take that lightly. Notice also we see that it is an inflated punishment. Right? It's increased. It's, it's grown. And to, to get this point across, he, he gives a comparison between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Verse 28 says, Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And that was the law in the Old Testament. If you committed a capital crime or a capital offense, they could not put you to death on the testimony of one witness. There had to be two or three. But if there were two or three witnesses, then you were put to death without mercy. He says, how much worse of a punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? He's already, through the book of Hebrews, he's already shown that Christ is superior to Moses. Remember, Moses was good as a servant. Christ is the son over the house. He's also confirmed the greatness of the new covenant compared to the old covenant. Made of better sacrifices, a better covenant, better promises. And so he's confirmed that Christ is far superior to Moses, the new covenant far superior to the old covenant. He says, so now, if you turn your back on Moses, that's one thing. How much worse do you think it is you turn your back on Christ? Well, to turn your back on Moses, you were put to death without mercy. To turn your back on Christ, what do you suppose is going to happen? Well, he gives them a little bit of an indication of that back in verse 27. He says, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. An expectation of judgment. Do you know what I expect when I stand before God? Because I'm trusting in His Son, Jesus Christ, who died for my sins, I expect to be forgiven. I know I will be. I expect to be welcomed into His presence because of the grace of God. But if I was to turn my back on Him, if I was to walk away 
from my faith, walk away from the family of God, say, I'm not going to have anything to do with you guys anymore. I'm not going to have anything to do with God anymore. I'm just going back to my old life. If I was to do that, you know what I can expect? Judgment. Fire. The old fire and brimstone preaching isn't that common or popular anymore. But you know what? The fact of the matter is, it is reality. It is truth. He says they got fiery judgment to look forward to if you turn your back on Christ. If you walk away from the only path of salvation, what, is that? what are we saved from? The Bible consistently teaches that we are saved from, we are delivered from the wrath of God upon sinful mankind. If we turn our back on the one way of salvation, then we're under the wrath of God. We're not delivered from it. So if I turn my back on Christ today, no matter how many sermons I've given in here to the contrary, I will prove my faith to be false. Because I wouldn't be remaining faithful. I would prove my faith to be false and God would be completely justified in sending me to a fiery eternity. You know, our world today and its its acceptance of anything and everything that comes down the pike, except for sometimes the truths of the Word of God, doesn't like this whole idea of a fiery judgment, but it's, it's throughout the Bible. Back in the Old Testament, in the book of Zephaniah, chapter 3, verse 8, it says, Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy all the earth shall be consumed. New Testament's the same way. Jesus spoke often of it. In fact, He spoke more of hell than He did of heaven. Matthew chapter 13, in the Kingdom of Heaven parables, He says, Just as the weeds were gathered and burned with the fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Just a few verses later, after another parable, this one's the parable of the net. It says, so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul writes and says, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. And that isn't all of them. It's not an exhaustive list of the passages. But the fact remains that if we turn our back on Jesus Christ, there is nothing left for us but a fiery indignation. There is no more sacrifice for sin. This is the one and only opportunity for forgiveness and a redemption in Jesus Christ. And to turn our back on Him... Well, if you thought the punishment for under Moses was bad, this is so much worse. I don't know why, but a lot of times it seems that people get the impression that the Old Testament was harsh and judgmental and the New Testament is soft. It's not true. In the Old Testament, we learn a little bit about judgment. In the New Testament, we get the expanded version of it. Just like in the Old Testament, we get a limited understanding of righteousness. In the New Testament, we get a deeper understanding of righteousness. In the Old Testament, we get a limited understanding of salvation. In the New Testament, we get a deeper understanding of salvation. It's the same with judgment. In fact, when the Apostle Paul was talking to these philosophers on Mars Hill in Greece, he says this, he says, "...the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people..." everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead 
You see the point that he's making? Is he saying, look, when things were a little less clear, God oh, let some things slide a little bit. But he's saying now that he's determined a day that he's going to judge the world through the appointed person, which is Jesus Christ. He says he commands everybody, all people everywhere, to repent. Why? Because he's given us enough proof in the resurrection of Jesus Christ that this is the truth of God. That if you turn away from this truth, you are destroyed. And I don't mean destroyed like you stop existing. I mean, like it said in that Second Thessalonians passage, an everlasting destruction, a continual destruction. If they turn their back on Moses, they got put to death. If we turn our back on Christ, we get an eternity without Him. Eternity in the flames of hell. It is a much greater judgment. He says, how much more do we deserve? Well, that will bring us into the last part, and that is that it's a just punishment. Because notice it says, how much more severe punishment do we deserve if we turn our back on Christ? If we're turning our back on the greater revelation, the greater person, the Almighty God, we're turning our back on Him, we deserve greater punishment. So that means it is just. Now, I'm sure that these people maybe didn't really feel like that would be all that just. That maybe, you know what, they're going through a lot. It's hard. It's hard to live for Christ when they're taking your home from you. It's hard to live for Christ when they're making fun of you. It's hard to live for Christ when they're throwing you in prison. It's not going to be a cakewalk in hell. He's saying this is, we're talking about defection here. We're talking about desertion. And it points out kind of how it looks from God's point of view. Notice what it looks like to God. He says, you have trampled underfoot my son. You have profaned the blood of the covenant. You've outraged the spirit of grace. Let's deal with those just one at a time. You've trampled underfoot my son. I'm going to talk to you parents for a few minutes. You know, when somebody mistreats us, we don't like it. We like to see things be just. We like to see things be fair. But we can deal with it, right? When somebody mistreats your children, then it's a different story. Then it kind of forces us to get a little more involved. Right? Because we're the protector of our children. Because we care for our children. We love our children. God sent His Son into this world. He left the glories and the splendors of heaven to come down and be born a helpless baby. The Creator of the world, an infant, needing His diaper changed. He grew up through the life that we have to grow up through. He experienced the pains, the sorrows, the temptations, the struggles that we experience. And He did all that for a purpose. He lived for 30 years on this earth headed toward that point the next three and a half years after that, headed, all of it headed toward the cross. He did that for the purpose of coming down and dying on that cross for us. He laid down His life for us. He went through, He let people spit on Him. He let people pull the hair out of His beard. He let people put a crown of thorns on Him and drive it down into His scalp. He let people blindfold Him and slug Him in the face and say, prophesy and tell us who hit you. He let Him do all this stuff. He let them beat Him, whip Him with a cat of nine tails. And then put a cross on His back and march Him on a parade through town, mocking Him all the way up to Golgotha, onto the hill of Mount Calvary, where they would put Him in that cross, into the ground, and hang him up there for everybody to despise and ridicule. And they would do that until he died. God the Father allowed the Son, even at one point, had to turn his back on his own Son on that cross, and he did all of that for us. And we're just going to throw it away? We're going to say, thanks but no thanks? If we say thanks but no thanks, God's saying, you're, you're taking that? And you're saying it was nothing? I gave my Son for you. Are you going to trample him under your feet? I'm not letting that slide. Profaned. The word profane means to treat something as common. Profaned. 
the blood of the cross. We've had an ongoing uh, issue in our country with our flag, have we not? And, uh, and the NFL made a new ruling on it for this season coming in because these players in the NFL took a knee during the national anthem. And that bothers a lot of us. Why does it bother us? Because we've been taught all of our life. Our flag means something. Our flag's important. I remember one time I listened to a teenager give a recital, and it was about when the Star Spangled Banner was written. Francis Scott Key is out on the ship. He went out onto the ship to meet with Britain to, he thought, make a, make a peace treaty. And we got out on that ship. They were keeping him there, and he noticed, oh, here's, here come all these specks on the horizon, and it's all the, the British fleet of ships coming. And he was then informed that you're not going anywhere. You're staying here, and there's no treaty. All those ships are going to be here, and we're going to hit you with everything we've got, and this is good. we're going to put an end to this. And Francis Scott Key wrote the Star Spangled Banner while he was on that ship, watching those bombs land on our shore, targeting our flag. And the flag got hit, and it's going down, and somebody picks it up, and they hold up that flag. And they get hit, and they're dead, and somebody else takes their place. By dawn's early light, that flag is still waving. And it's held up by a pile of dead people that were fighting for our freedoms. And so that flag is important to us. It angers us when something that we look at as important that we stand for, we remove our hats for. We sing a song before games. And and when I was in school, we gave pledges before class started at the beginning of each day. Because we recognize that that flag stood for freedom that was paid for down through the years. And we recognize that it represents a country that, you know, and in the discussion, I remember talking to somebody and they talked about, well, how do you think they feel? There was slavery here. Why are we always remembered as a country that had slavery? Every country in the world has had slavery. Why don't we recognize the country that got rid of it? That's what that flag stands for, for me, that we're for people's freedom and that we go around the world trying to give other people freedom when they want it or when they're too weak to fight for it on their own. It stands for meaningful things. And so it makes me mad. When somebody treats it lightly. Well, you know what? That's small potatoes. The blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on that cross for the purchase of our forgiveness, our salvation. If you turn your back on Christ, you're saying that's nothing. That's common. It's an unholy, uncommon thing. God thanks, but no thanks. God says we won't let her stand at that. Outrage the spirit of grace. God's goodness, God's grace is what gave that to us. And and, and we're going to turn our back on it. The Spirit of grace. God in His goodness and His grace reaches out to us with the forgiveness that comes through His Son, Jesus Christ, and His sacrifice on the cross. If we turn our back on that grace, He says we outrage that Spirit. As we consider that, look at what the rest of the passage says. It just deals with who God is. For we know Him who said... You know, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of times people get the idea that today that God is just kind of some grandfatherly figure that's fine with everything, accepting of everything, uh, whatever, whatever you want to do is great. Absolutely not the case. I remember even one time, Felice and I started listening to that uh, that book, the, the Shack. Remember years ago, and there's a line in the Shack where the character who's supposed to be God says, "I don't judge sin. Sin is its own judgment." They forget about the flood. They forget about Sodom and Gomorrah. They forget about the captivities of Israel. They forget about all the, all the judgment that the book of Revelation unfolds that's going to happen in the future. The Bible's full of judgment. So he's taking it here and he's saying, look, who are we dealing with? He quotes a couple passages from Deuteronomy 32. He says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. And he ends with it as a fearful thing to fall into the hands 
of the living God. Look, the point through this whole passage is if you're tempted to walk away from Christ, or if you've never trusted in Him, you need to recognize this is the only legitimate sacrifice for your sins. If we walk away from this sacrifice, we walk away from the only opportunity at the grace of God, the only forgiveness that is offered for our sins. And we face the wrath of God who says, I want you to know, based on my own character, I will repay. Vengeance is mine. He says, if you, if you will pass up on what I did for you in the cross through my grace, if you will trample underfoot my Son, if you will profane the blood that He shed on the cross, if you will despise the Spirit of my grace that reached out to you with salvation, then you are left with only a fiery judgment. 